least turn off and on. Hear me now? Let's take a moment and just pray. Father God, we come boldly into your throne room. And we have learned that this is where we find grace to help in times of need. And we come unashamed, unafraid. We know, God, that we have not merited your, your favor. But in your mercy, God, you have provided through the blood of your son, Jesus, a covering, a removing of the stain of sin that is so offensive to you. That we come, Father, as your sons and daughters adopted into your family, and we call you Father. Father God, the most important thing that can happen most of the time is when we can hear your voice. And we invite you by your Spirit, God, to be here, to bring clarity in the speaking, to bring Uh, in the hearing, uh, an enlightenment, and God, that our lives would be changed because of this meeting with you. Forgive us for the times, God, when we have forgotten that you are the center of our universe. That I didn't do that. And that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And that we live and move and have our being because of you. And Father, I pray that as we turn our hearts and our focus towards you, we lay aside all of the extraneous things, the joys, the pains, the the moving, everything. We lay it aside, Father, and we open our hearts up to you. And we invite you by your spirit to take control of this time as we look into your word and we consider your son. Father, I pray that your kingdom come and your will would be done in us in this room today and that we will be changed as a result of our, of our meeting with you. We pray these things and we give you thanks, God, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This is, uh, this is very different for me uh, than a pre- any previous time when I was up here uh, filling in for Jeff or for Rob or, or whoever. <coughs> My life has changed. And uh, I am filled with gratitude for his mercies. I don't need to go into all the details. Perhaps most of you have prayed for me. And I'm I'm grateful for that because God has heard those prayers and he is is renewing and restoring me. So I thank you and I trust that God will repay you with a word that 
ignites in your spirit this morning. Uh, Last Sunday, uh, Rob preached a sermon from John 11. How many of you were here? Okay, the rest of you were sick, okay. (laughs) Because I thought you'd be here otherwise. But in this this passage, uh, he is sharing with us, or shared with us, an amazing story. And it's the story of a family that was dear to him. You'll remember Mary and Martha, who could tell me something about Mary. She sat at the feet of Jesus. Uh, She was not troubled about many things. What can you tell me about Martha? (laughs) Yeah. She's busy about things. She, had to, she tended to the details, try to keep things uh, flowing for everybody, make sure that the punch bowl was filled. I don't know if they had punch bowls, but uh, she was a blessing because of who she was. Uh, every family needs at least one Martha. And I'm glad that our family has one, and her name is not Martha. Uh, the things that came out as uh, Rob was sharing uh, was the amazing interaction of Jesus with this family. Uh, Lazarus, the brother, uh, became ill. And uh, Jesus and some of his disciples were in Jerusalem which is about three miles from Bethany. So it's not a long ways. And they, they got word that Lazarus was sick and perhaps unto death. And Jesus did something we would think would be not typical or what we would expect of him because he chose not to go. Now, this is, this is a 20-minute walk. It isn't like it was a big deal. And uh, he stays there with the disciples and uh, word comes to him that, or to them that the sickness has resulted in Lazarus' death. And you can just imagine what was going through the hearts of the disciples that were with Jesus. I mean, they, they knew this family. They had close relationship with them. And the death of Lazarus would hit them very hard. But uh, Jesus tells them that, cool your jets, this death, this sickness was not unto death, that Lazarus would live. He makes his way over to the, to the village of Bethany and uh, Martha rushes out. People are gathered there. People have come out from Jerusalem. They, this family was well known and they are grieving uh, over Lazarus' death. Martha comes out and she says to Jesus, if only you had been here, he would not have died. In other words, why? 
Why would you wait? Well, it was such a, literally a small thing to be here, to, to take care of the problem. And in her mind, she saw Jesus as being capable. They had seen him heal people, restore sight to the blind. They, they had seen him deal with people in ways that set them free from disease and sickness and, and many other problems. And uh, in her mind, uh, she had faith that Jesus could do that. But she didn't have faith that he was up to this. In any case, Jesus now, now begins to talk to them and tell them why he delayed. And that it was because of their faith. It was because he wanted them to see something and know something about him that they wouldn't already have known. And uh, they sent for Martha or Mary. Martha came, but uh, Mary came later. And Jesus gives uh, an instruction uh, to roll away the stone from the tomb where Lazarus was buried and is informed that it's been four days. Any of you been in the Middle East? It's very warm. Very warm. And uh, things tend to decay quickly. And the, th- the scene they were facing was a, as they rolled the stone away, would be an awful odor of decaying flesh. Obviously, you, everybody knows that that's over, it's done. Jesus gives the instruction, Lazarus, come out. And then to Martha and the others to take the grave clothes off of him and let him go. And uh, Lazarus was, was restored to life. Then Jesus said something very interesting and he said, this was done so that you might believe. All of us believe something. Maybe a lot of things. Some of them are even true. But this was outside of anything that they could imagine. And this is, a, this is probably within two weeks when Jesus would himself be hung on a cross to die. And uh, Jesus says something that we need to hear this morning. He says, this was done so that you might believe. Didn't they believe? Yes. Probably believed a lot of things. They were close friends. They knew Jesus to be kind and gentle and and merciful and gracious and uh, willing to give of his time and to spend time with people who were sick and had problems. They had faith in Jesus, but just not for this. This had never been seen or done before. And Jesus also knew that within a a couple of weeks, they would face the same kind of emotions, probably 
multiplied many times over. When he was taken, their best friend, this man that, that, that knew no sin, this man that did only good, was taken and tried and hung on a cross like a, like a common criminal. And they, and they watched this. And they saw the, the, the process in which Jesus was dealt with when he was buried. And it was all over. You know, the dream is finished. And this issue with Lazarus was very important. Go ahead and answer it. (laughs) So the event that took place with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and a large number of Jews, which were the majority people at that time in that part of the country, There were Pharisees and Sadducees and others there with various opinions about how life works, what happens at death, uh, is there a resurrection or is it? They, They had an opinion. And these people were confronted with something that absolutely paralyzed them. Because if the word gets out that Jesus not only does mud in the eye, Jesus not only uh, can touch someone and and they are healed of leprosy, but he has the power of life within him, the power to restore real life after it is obviously gone. And their fear was a political one, that as this word got out, that there would be a, a rising up of uh, people that, that would want to follow Jesus and this would become so well known that they would lose their positions of authority in the council. So they set, a, set out a plan and uh, from that day began to, to make their, their move that Jesus was to be killed. Now, the thing that I've, I've uh, been wrestling with, and for me right now, these, it is a wrestling match. It doesn't come easy. But the thing that, that I've been wrestling with is that we have a view of Jesus that causes us to raise our hands and worship him. But often that our, our, our concept or our view of Jesus is limited, circumscribed. Uh, he's able to do this, but he's not able to do that. Now, I've had a, a lot of opportunity in my life. I was born into the family of a pastor. So I was in church in the first week of my life. It was a wonderful sermon that day. <laughs> and I, I just took it all in. But I had the privilege of growing up in a family that were godly people. My father was the most authentic man that I've ever met. Uh, humble. 
He was a servant. Uh, he was not particularly a gifted speaker. But he spoke the truth, and he spoke it out of a pure heart. And God used my parents to touch many, many people. But my sense is that as I, as I uh, try to process what's going on in our culture at this time, and the, the Christian community, the churches uh, that are existent in this time in our culture, uh, I see a moral and ethical diminution or disintegration that would have been unbelievable back when I was in high school. Uh, That's a long time, but not that long. Uh, There was a a national consensus about what was right and what was wrong. There there was a uh, consensus of opinion that you didn't do this, or at least you didn't let anybody know you did this. Uh, I I noticed uh, uh, looking at uh, a high school annual from 1956. How many of you remember that wonderful year? But I tell you, it, it was amazing to look back at these kids that I had a good time with. And I, and I remember this. The language was uh, not profane. It was not vulgar. The dressing to a person was modest. And it, it, it was just the way it was. And uh, people in, the, in all of the culture, there were still people who were abusing alcohol and I don't think anybody heard about marijuana yet. Uh, I don't think drugs were an issue. I didn't hear about it. But uh, there was this this sense that uh, everybody agreed that the Judeo-Christian ethic was true. And it's the Judeo-Christian ethic that really is the foundation or the fountain from which Uh, any understanding of Christian morality or ethics has come. I can't, you know, it's just hard to to believe uh, what I see and hear now. Uh, I drove uh, a shuttle bus for Bear Mountain for several years. And uh, a shuttle truck Sometimes I was driving a bus between the two resorts. And to hear uh, beautiful young girls, I mean, physically, everything was going for them. And I remember one time, this young girl, about a third of the way back, was loud and vulgar and uh, inappropriate to the max. But to her crowd, it was normal. But after the people got off, I asked her if she would come, come to me. And I said, I'd just like to share something with you. I said, you know that God has blessed you. You're a beautiful girl. 
But when you open your mouth, it all goes away. I won't tell you what she told me. <laughs> you've, got, you've got a dirty mind. But my concern as we, as we watch this disintegration and we wonder if there, is, if there is a salvation for our civilization. It's become a dangerous place. Truth is optional. And it might not be completely true in any case. Lies and prevarication uh, are stock and trade for our politicians. And it's become a dangerous, it's become a dangerous place. And it seems to be on the decline. And my question, is there hope? I, I hope that's water. That's water. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. And I wonder what it will take. Is there chance that there could be another great awakening. What does this mean for the church in this day and age? And, uh, you know, I have to believe that revival is possible with God's people. It may be painful. We may go through persecution. We may go through a lot of things. But as things stand, uh, the church is declining in numbers, in influence, in the place of respect, in the culture. Christianity has become the only entity uh, of which it's still okay to be prejudiced. Uh, it can be talked about in ways that are not true. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm wondering what is it going to take for the church to become salt and light in a much more intense and broader sense than we see it right now. I suspect that all of you people here uh, I, I see you most every Sunday, and I think you're good people. I think you order your lives in a way that is honoring to God. Of course, I don't know your secret stuff. But how does the church become contagious again? And this is not where I intended to go with, uh, with the message, but uh, I thought I would just uh, unload and kind of ask a few questions. And maybe a question uh, I would put out there. How many of you have hosted neighbors or friends who are not Christians for a meal in your home? Hallelujah. That's not, that's not all that common. Uh, we, if we do get together socially, it's usually with our own kind. And that's not bad. 
we need that kind of fellowship and stimulation from one another. But there's going to take a move, it's going to take a move of the Spirit of God to make us contagious again. Uh, and one of the things that I observe is that uh, Christians oftentimes do not have a uh, deep awareness of spiritual things. Uh, for instance, if, uh, if you were confronted with someone who is not a Christian, had no idea what it was about, how would you explain to them the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you have a handle on what their thought processes are and how to confront those processes without killing them? And how to share the good news, the really good news that is ours uh, in Jesus Christ. This leads me to what I feel like God was putting on my heart for this morning. I think we see Jesus in a fairly narrowly confined way. Uh, We see him in the context of uh, his time and his culture because that's what we read about. And uh, the thing that I, I, I would like to get across is that Jesus is the absolute pivot point the center of all history. In uh, <clears throat> so rather than be, being narrowly confined, uh, we read in Genesis 1.1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void and so on. And uh, I saw a TV program that wasn't edifying, but uh, it was an eye-opener. And it was a program entitled The History of the Universe in Two Hours. (laughs) It doesn't take long if your assumptions are that far off. But it was just unbelievable. And this is, this, is, this is the meal, this is the food that's being fed to our students about origins and how things really work. Uh, the beginning point uh, was that somewhere out there, there was a tiny microscopic, matter of fact, so small it was unmeasurable, of a ball of intense energy. And at some point in time, that ball of energy exploded. And things started happening and forming and clouds swirled. And, oh. I mean, 
I, I couldn't. I think it, uh, it takes too much faith to be an atheist. <laughs> there is no reasonable argument for what is if there is not a creator. There is no reasonable argument, and it begins with a necessary assumption that there cannot be a God. We can't let God get his foot in the door. So we invent these amazing things, and we call them science. And with that word attached, it's like it's, it's, like it's the gospel. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In uh, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. By bottom line purpose, is to establish Jesus Christ as the center of history. The center of everything that is. And I've got a lot of scriptures. I'm not going to go into all of them. But uh, concerning the the end times, you go to the the time when Jesus uh, is resurrected and he's going to be ascended and he's telling them that, that I'm coming back again. Or we go to Revelation and we discover there in chapters 21, 22 that uh, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to collect everything and present it to the Father as the rightful owner. So if you could get this picture, and I I debated doing this, but I I felt like it would be too cumbersome. But I have a, a canvas that's probably that long, on which has been painted, hand-painted, the process from Genesis to Revelation. And the absolute center of that arc of history has to be Jesus Christ, and is. This is This is a teaching I would like to do sometime over a period of, Six weeks if we had a class or something. But uh, I think it's so desperately important that we have an understanding 
that Jesus is not just my personal Jesus who's there to bail me out and, and, and help me along. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And before him, every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. If we don't get the first piece right, none of the other pieces will be right. You'll you'll figure something out, but it will be a conclusion that leads to death. Death in all of its variegated forms. And that's what's happening in our culture from, from my point of view. Uh, we as believers are confronted with a sewer pipe of death presented in attractive forms. And it comes across on our television all of the time. It is the underlying set of assumptions that that comes out of our universities. And our young people are being programmed to think in the beginning there was no God. They are called materialists. And probably 85% of secular university professors are materialists. That there was no God involved, that out of this little thing, something came. And evolution took over, and lo and behold, here we are with ants and elephants. We're told, and I can't verify this, but it comes from a reliable source, that 85% of young people who enter secular university by their second year have lost their faith. They're immersed in it. They're buried in it. There is, there is no one unless they are tightly attached to a, a support group or to a church or they, they are reading good things. There is nothing that can counteract this tide of lies. So what do we have? We have a morality that is, that is destroying lives. I go back to the time when I was in high school. I never heard of marijuana. I, 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 I never met or heard of a homosexual. I had a graduating class of almost a thousand kids. This wasn't a little country school that was being taught by the preacher. But there were underlying assumptions that were Christian at their foundation. And consequently, we have seen this unraveling of uh, a belief system. And the leaders in Washington want to know what do we do about the poverty problem? What do we do about uh, the immigration problem? And they have no answers because there there are underlying causes that are not being acknowledged and dealt with. When you take the father out of the home, 
when you make divorce easy and cheap, when you encourage sexual immorality, you take something away from the person who chooses to believe that lie. There's not as much to give to your partner for life. And it's being reinforced by, uh, by the culture and, and by the friends. The pressure is intense. And my uh, desire would be that uh, the church would become so filled with the Spirit of Christ that our, our young people when they go to university, they go there armed and supported. Let me, let me just say it again. The alarm's going to go off anyway. If Jesus is not the pivotal, central focus of our understanding of how things are, we'll believe anything. If Jesus is in that position and we honor him, it doesn't mean we're not going to be touched by things that hurt. Some of them have nothing to do, that is not our fault. We're, We're victims. But the fact that Jesus is at the center of our life uh, somebody over here mentioned it to me about a sermon I preached a while ago about, and I had an illustration with a, a box and uh, a grid that, uh, a, like a sieve and I poured a bucket of plain dirt just off the ground into that sieve and as I, as I shake it the little stuff falls through. And the rocks remain there. Now, I'm not sure whether we want the little stuff or the big stuff. That's not the point. But the point is, if we do not have a grid of truth through which we can make a judgment on what this TV drama is telling us, we cannot just sit there as blank receivers making no judgment about anything. And we, we have only one source that can give us that ability to deal with all the lies that are coming at us. Some of them are sexual, some of them are, are material, some of them have to do with fundamental understandings of the universe and how it's made. I have four, Darlene and I have four grandchildren. She's responsible that they're good looking. But uh, I pray for them every day that God will give them a spirit of discernment. That God will give them the ability when stuff comes at them through no fault of their own that they could put it through a grid and come out with the truth. And I think this is probably one of the, the, the main things that as Christians 
we have, our, our faith is private. We don't talk about the crap that we watched last night. Uh, we don't talk about uh, the things that our kids are facing. And consequently, there, there is no processing or help in the processing of separating truth that is life-giving and lies that are death-dealing. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the absolute center of all things. And his word and his spirit are the only tools that we have along with brothers and sisters that care. That we have to not keep buying into death. We're amused by, the gun, by all the smoke and gunfire and we're amused by the adultery and stuff that's going on. The women are half-dressed and they're beautiful. I mean, it's a nightmare to keep your thinking straight. And I, my, my goal today, and I, I didn't do it very well, was to establish this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today, and forever. And by his spirit, we have everything we need living in in, uh, community with God's people. Everything we need for life and godliness. And dear friends, we need to pray for the young parents. We need to pray for the children who are growing up nursing on this bottle filled with poison. And some of it isn't overt. Some of it is philosophy, how you see things. And parents, we need not to depend on the school system to do it for us. I'm not telling you you have to pull your kids out of public school, but you better set some barriers up because it is the law that this Philosophy is taught as the foundation of truth. And we have in our possession the word of God, the indwelling spirit of God to discern. And we need to teach our children how to take and pour that stuff into the sieve and shake it and see what, see what remains. Except that. Or process that with someone else that cares. I hope you see why it's important that our, our, our Christian life is not just Sunday to Sunday. I hope you see why it's important for families, husbands and wives with their children, uh, cell groups that meet together and become deep friends who talk about the real stuff, who love each other, who eat and laugh together and and grind the hard stuff until we know it. If all I've got is my own shrinking brain, uh, I'm vulnerable. If I've got my brother Jim to meet with me on 
Tuesdays. And we're, we're loving each other, or we're eating together, or we're talking about football, and we're studying God's Word. And uh, I, I know it's good for me, and I, I believe it's good for Jim, but we put this kind of stuff out of the way. Sometime I'll do it, but not today. Sometime I'll get involved with a, with a, a nurturing group, a family, a spiritual family. And this is too big to do it here, unless we reorganized and did it a different way like sitting around tables and the preacher not doing all the talking. Just a thought. But this stuff is serious enough that uh, we're going to get snowed under. The plow is going to just push the snow right over the top of us. And we're going to wonder what happened and not have any idea how to dig out. Jesus, the Christ, is the absolute center point of history. In the beginning, God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The creator, the one who met the challenge of his archenemy, Satan, and provided a way through the blood of Jesus Christ for us to be saved from the lies and gather together with friends. You know, sometimes it feels like an assignment. I got to go to a group tonight. I mean, this should be the highlight of your week. This should be the, the, the joy of your life to meet together with people that you really care about and who you believe care about you. And make God, Jesus Christ, the word of God, the center of that fellowship without being offended if everybody doesn't agree with you every time. It's a dynamic process. Jesus did it for three years with his disciples. They find find ground everything. They came to understand the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the differences and the philosophical underpinnings of their beliefs. And they got it from Jesus. And they got it in relationship. Anybody got a question? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm just... Uh, I bit off more than I've ever tried to chew before. But somehow you can't just deal with that little bitty piece. There's a cohesiveness that has to be understood. And I'll tell you, this building, if we became infectious, we'd have to do 10 services on Sunday. And we'd probably get tired of that because we'll wear the preacher out. Uh, And we'd build a bigger barn. But when we become infectious... And we know how to give every man an answer for the reason of the hope that is in us. Uh, We're going to find ourselves being infectious. Some of us don't understand the pagan mind. Maybe none of us really do. 
and what their values are, what the underpinnings of, of the philosophy is, and how to, how to approach that with the truth without finger-wagging. We can learn. We can learn. All right, let's, let's stand. God, I thank you that you so loved the world. This world that uh, rebelled against you became your enemy. But you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, I pray that your will would be done and your kingdom would come to Bear Valley. I pray for the plethora of churches that uh, there would be a visitation of your Holy Spirit that would, uh, that would bring us back to first things and give us a passion again. I pray, Father, you would give us the courage to clean out our libraries, the courage to block those channels, the courage not to feed in secret the things that are killing us in public. Thank you, Father, for that kind of love. And thank you for that hope that we have in you. Pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.